Our text today is Psalm 7. Psalm 7. We shall make three points. They're there in your outline. The injustice, the judge, and the judgment. The injustice, the judge, and the judgment. So first, the injustice. In verse 1, Psalm 7, verse 1, Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. A lot of the Psalms, as we've seen, they start with direct pleas to God. This one actually starts with an action that was taken by the psalmist. But of course, even here, even here it's God who's acted first. God's prior action enables the psalmist, makes our praying possible. And you can see this when the psalmist begins with, Lord, my God. And the my is important. It means that by electing grace and by his holy covenant, God has already embraced us and bound himself to us. And so David calls him, my God. And so prayer is the place where God moves, if you will, from being God in general, God in general, God out there, to being your God. That's what prayer does. So David says, I take refuge in you. God, he says, is, is my defender. And refuge is part of what I would call the vocabulary of trust that we have to cultivate to pray well. This is another thing the Psalms do for us. They give you building blocks. They give you words. I always counsel people who are struggling in prayer to say, to put aside their own words. Just pray the Psalms. The prayers are already there for you. Just read them. We, and, and so what the Psalms do is they give us a kind of vocabulary of trust, a, a language by which God can become not God in general, but your God. And, and it's important to see this. We take refuge in God by praying and confessing and declaring that he is our refuge. This very prayer is the form that taking refuge takes. Have you ever thought about that? Someone says, well, take refuge in the Lord. And you're like, well, what, what does that mean? What am I supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to pray and confess and declare that he's your refuge. How can you practically make God your refuge? Pray the Psalms, including Psalm 7. And so, so David, he asks God to save and deliver him from his pursuers. The text says, lest he be torn apart like a lion, ripped to pieces. If God doesn't shelter him, no one will shelter him. Of course, David's situation is unique. He's the king. He has political enemies. He's a public person, as we've seen. He's a picture of Jesus Christ. But even we, too, are often victims of slander and gossip. David is, is the victim here of something like a smear campaign. Uh, we, we find ourselves at the hands of things that undermine our reputation or of criticisms which are unfair or painful. 
of people who are often close to us, who mistreat or ignore us or harm us? Most of us have or will at some point be falsely accused. And we'll know our innocence. And we might be in some turmoil or distress. Because often your accuser might seem unfair or beyond reason, without sympathy. And so, often we get angry or we nurse a secret desire for revenge. Or we just might be at our wit's end. We're being mistreated. We're being falsely accused. Someone is slandering or lying about us or the situation. And we don't know what to do. And this is why Psalm 7 is a psalm of of relevance for all of us. Practical relevance. David is certain, David is certain here that in the case before us, he's innocent. He is being wrongly accused. Now, of course, in life, things are often messier, a little more ambiguous. There's often some guilt on both sides. But there are also many situations where one party's right and the other party's wrong, and that's the case here in Psalm 7. This is one of those cases. And David is so sure of his innocence that he takes a fearsome oath before God in verses 3 through 5. He says, if I've done this, if I've done this, and there is guilt on my hands, if I've repaid my ally with evil or without cause robbed my foe, If any of these things are true, Lord, he says, let my enemy pursue me and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. This is serious business here that David is engaged in. In other words, what he says to God is, let those who are seeking to kill me, kill me. If they are are in the right and if I have done what they claim I have done. And so, whatever this is, the title gives us a suggestion, but it mentions a Benjamite that we don't know anything about. So we're not quite sure of the original situation. But whatever the situation is, the pain is deep and it's unfair, and David expects God to act. He prays an oath because he's convinced that he's without blame in the situation. I think... We have to be cautious, but we can, in similar situations, pray this way. Judge me, O God, if you must, but please do not let these slanders stand. Judge me, O God, if you must, but please do not let these slanders and lies stand. And that brings us to the second point, the judge. David prays this way because he believes God is a warrior judge. This is a theme throughout the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament, he uses what scholars call pre-battle language here. Arise, O Lord, in your anger, rise up against the rage of my enemies. It's a call to battle. He doesn't just want God to respond to the situation. Notice that. He wants God to respond to the situation in a certain mood. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Let your holy, perfect, good anger meet their disordered rage. In other words, situations 
call upon us to pray for God to act in a certain mood. A mood that corresponds to the situation we're facing. And David illustrates that here. Awake, my God, he says. Awake means that God appears to the psalmist to be sleeping. I don't know if you've noticed, but this sentiment is found regularly in the Psalms and the prophets. Rouse yourself. This is not impious. It's the regular cry of the godly in distress. It's a cry to God himself to stop behaving as if he's sleeping, but to wake up, to arise, and to reorder the situation. It's the cry of those who refuse to let injustice stand, even now in history. Then at the end of verse 6, David says, decree justice. This is what he wants God to do. He's hungering and he's thirsting for justice. And hungering and thirsting for justice is not first and foremost about political action. It's about praying for an end to injustice. Defined by the God of justice. It's about calling God to arise and to awake and to do so in his holy wrath because that's the only reasonable response to these murderous, slanderous injustices. And so David prays, decree justice. If you're going to pray to God to decree justice, we're going to have to be very careful that before doing so, we feel as confident as David that we're innocent in this case. Notice verse 7. This happens often in the Psalms and it happens here. There's a kind of broadening out, an enlargement of David's concern. All of a sudden we see a wider field of vision than his own situation and it comes into view. He says, let the assembled peoples gather around you while you sit enthroned over them on high. He's praying about an acute, acutely painful situation. And all of a sudden... Now he's talking about the nations being assembled over God on high. Notice God is on high here in verse 7. He's the most high in verse 8. He's called God most high in verse 10. And he's called the Lord most high in verse 17. Most high is the international name for God. It's the God who rules and judges the nations. And so all of a sudden, David is not quite just praying for himself anymore. Because when you ask God to to arise and to do justice, you're praying righteously. And every righteous prayer is in some sense a prayer for the final judgment and the restoration of all things. We've seen this over and over again. Prayer for healing or prayers for healing they have, they have buried under the surface a desire for immortality and life beyond the threat of corruption and decay. That's what's really going on when we pray for healing. Prayers for conversion are about the final coming of the kingdom 
bearing down on the lives of men and women now that they might stand in the last day. Prayers for employment and other distresses are prayers for a provision and a wholeness that will only be realized in the new creation. Prayers for spiritual growth and renewal and grace are ultimately prayers about our desire to see God face to face in everlasting joy and communion. Prayers against injustice and evil and slanders are intermediate yearnings for the new heavens and the new earth where evil is obliterated and righteousness and truth dwell. And it's a tragedy that we keep piddling along on our prayers and we don't see that they're all to be oriented toward this end. There is no prayer, which if we didn't tease it out a little bit, is not about the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection. This is why thy kingdom come is the heart of all praying. All praying. The heart of it is thy kingdom come. And this is why the prayers of Paul, for example, And I encourage you again to look at the prayers of Paul. They're on that prayer sheet. We use two of them. I allude to two of them on the the monthly prayer sheet. One from Ephesians 1, the other from Ephesians 3. Read those prayers. Let them shape your prayer life. And the prayers of Paul are shot through with groaning for the glory which is to be revealed. The first thing. The chief thing, the central thing that Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians, after he expounds this doctrine of the triune God of grace, glorious grace, free grace, predestining grace, the electing God, then Paul turns to pray for the church. And the first thing he prays is that they would know the hope of their calling. His prayers are oriented, determined, and dictated by the end. He's not just wandering around in history, bouncing from one thing to another, praying whatever happens to be the latest interrupt or emergency or phone call. Everything is shaped by this. Thy kingdom come is the heart of praying. And thus, in the middle of his own distress, David appeals to the Lord Most High, to the just God of all the nations, To arise, to take his seat on the heavenly bench and the throne and judge the peoples. He wants this done openly. Thus he says to the Lord, gather the assembled peoples. In other words, he's being slandered. He's in pain and his prayer is now moved to the point where he is praying for an international assembly. Something like a Hague or a United Nations where God would take his throne and execute international justice. He wants it to be public. He wants its range to be universal. But, and this is important, he hasn't forgotten his own plight. It's just that he's resting his case on the fact that God is the warrior, king, and judge of the nations. And we should learn to frame our prayers in the same light. Our prayers are never, ever, ever just about us. They are to be caught up like they are here into God's cosmic purposes. Into into what Paul says in Ephesians 1 is his plan for the fullness of time to reintegrate and restore all things in Christ. 
That's what God is doing today, tonight, tomorrow, next week. He's working to reintegrate, to restore, to heal, to reconcile the cosmos in Jesus Christ. Pray. Get behind that purpose. Pray. Pray in the wake of that. Yet, of course, we do and we should, as this psalm indicates, pray specifically for our own situation. David's doing that. And he returns to his own situation in the middle of verse 8. He says, vindicate or judge me, Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity. Now, this is not a declaration of self-righteousness. David knows, as Psalm 143 puts it, that no one living is righteous in God's sight. Psalm 130 says the same thing. It says, if the Lord were to mark iniquity, no one could stand. And yet you encounter a lot of this language in the Psalms where the psalmist says, vindicate me according to my righteousness or according to my integrity or according to the purity of my heart or the cleanness of my hands. It's important to see that he's not speaking about absolute righteousness or integrity here. What he is saying is, Lord, with respect to this case, with respect to this case, I am in the right. That's what he means. This is a basic appeal for justice in a specific situation. Even the the Canaanite king, Abimelech, seemingly an honorable man, in Genesis 20, he talks to God about his integrity. Same word David uses here. His integrity in the matter of Abraham giving him Sarah under the guise that Sarah was his sister. And there God, the God God of all the nations, God Most High, agrees with the Canaanite king. He agrees with Abimelech that Abimelech had acted with integrity. So righteousness and integrity in a given case, they might be possessed by the people of God, they might not be. But in this case, David expects God to uphold his integrity. And again... He broadens out the vision. Notice that he says, bring an end to the, to the violence of the wicked and make, and make, the text says, not just me, but make all the righteous secure. It's something like this instinct in prayer. Save me, O Lord, from my enemies and make your people in Syria and Iraq dwell in safety. That's what David does here. Save me and make the righteous, plural, secure. That's the spirit of prayer for justice. And the only one who can do this, David says, is the Lord who probes the hearts and the minds. Notice that that God's omniscience, his probing of your heart and your mind, his knowing of all things with his sovereign ease, means that he must be just. David connects those two things in the psalm. God's attributes are are one. They're indivisible. God is not a man. God does not have parts. He does not have emotional parts. His omniscience is just. His justice is omniscient. You know what this means? David is saying something. This means that God has no need in this case. This case that he's going to judge, he has no need to call witnesses. He has no need to receive testimony. 
He doesn't need, God does not need his executive powers to be separated from his legislative and judicial power. I love this text in Isaiah which says, The Lord alone is the lawgiver, the king, and the judge. Those are the three things the framers separated in the American founding. But the Lord alone is the executive king, the judicial judge, and and the lawgiver, the legislator. Those three things subsist in the perfection of God's being. And so this, this probing God, this just God, verse 10, David says, is my shield. He saves the upright in heart. Saving here means he renders just judgment for us. And verse 11 sounds a little surprising. God's a righteous God. He shows or displays his wrath or shows, in some translations, <coughs> he shows his indignation every day. And it's a, it's a hard thing to hear, I think, about God, that he's angry every day. But just because we've lost our capacity for outrage and injustice, and we can only show it sporadically, does not mean the immutable, constant, holy, and good God is not indignant. God is happy, serene, unperturbed, and indignant. And his wrath is revealed, often in kind and gentle ways. It's held back to the end. But David's point is God does not leave evil unnoticed. He does not. He he does not come to terms with it. He does not negotiate with it. He does not chill out about it. He does not say, hey, loosen up. It angers him, and he will deal with it. And that brings us to the third point, which is judgment. Verse 12 says, if he doesn't relent or repent, he, God, God the warrior, will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. You know, it turns out that the God who appears to be sleeping is in kindness giving men and women, giving people, even the enemies of his people, time. That's what he's doing. And that's a gift. It's a time for decision. Time for repentance. He is in the interim not napping, but he's sharpening his blade. You know, this matters to your prayer life. When God's not answering your prayers and it seems like he's silent, do you think of him as sleeping? Or do you think of him as sharpening his blade? That makes a big difference in how the delay is perceived and embraced. David says he's stringing his bow and prepping his arrows. And in the meantime, the text encourages us with the fact that Justin often comes sooner. It comes from the nature of evil itself. God doesn't even actually have to shoot these arrows. The text says, whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. In other words, evil conceives and brings forth its own trouble. It's a kind of uh, abortive enterprise. It's a futile kind of fertility. Conceived in trouble, it gives birth to disillusionment. Evil disappoints even itself, the psalm is saying. It can't deliver on its own promises. It's a bore. It's inherently stupid, self-defeating, and the psalmist declares that here. 
So in other words, the picture is God may be sharpening his sword, but he rarely has to use it. Since evil by its own nature is self-defeating and it eats itself. The psalm says those who dig a hole fall into it. The trouble they cause recoils on themselves. Their violence comes down on their own heads. <coughs> evil is an assault on the evildoer's own well-being. Now, of course, it's not always this way. That's why we have the book of Ecclesiastes. Sometimes it looks like this is not happening. But it does work out this way a lot. And I think it's important to remember that. People are regularly caught. They regularly ruin their lives. They damage their families. Their anger and their deceit feasts upon their own lives. Courts are backlogged. Police are busy. Evil exacts a price against itself now, not just later. And I've always been struck by this, even in the popular culture, where the general attitude is we don't live in a morally ordered universe. It's very difficult to find films where someone's behaving in an evil and an unjust way and doesn't pay for it. There's a sense in which it's just reality demands it, and even the makers of, of popular culture have to somehow bow to this reality. I remember seeing an interview a number of years ago with Denzel Washington. He had just made a film <coughs> where he plays a, uh, a police officer, a very corrupt one, training a younger police officer. And uh, he was in the interview, he talks about how corrupt his character is. And just how evil and unjust he is. And he, he says, I went to the writers and I said, my guy has to die. Spoiler alert, by the way. My guy has to die at the end of this film. And they said, really, you think so? And he, and, and he said, and I remember because uh, Washington said in the interview, yes, the wages of sin is death. Right. And you'll find this in many, uh, of course, the best art and literature has always done this. But even our worst art and literature finds it hard to avoid this. There is a sense in which this reality cannot be um, evaded. Evil eats itself. And in the meantime, God sharpens his bow and he gives us time. And in that time, <coughs> the greater David comes. Remember, David's the king. He's a picture of Christ. And only Christ can pray this psalm without qualification. He is absolutely righteous. Not just in a particular case, but in the case of his whole life. And he's vindicated because of his integrity. Jesus triumphs over the slanders of his foes, visible and invisible. And his cry, our Lord's cry, being heard, means that he ascends to judge the nations. He ascends first to the throne of the cross, and then he ascends to the heavenly throne. And in that, justice is upheld. Your salvation is secured. This is why in Christ we can, as the last line of the psalm says, give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. God's justice and righteousness 
would be a terror to us if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. But because Jesus Christ has borne that justice, we give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. We sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. And so I want to encourage you to repair to this one, this falsely accused one, Jesus Christ. When you're slandered or ignored or mistreated, I want to encourage us to pray for his kingdom, even as we pray for justice in our own case. Pray to the righteous God, the one whom Abraham called the judge of all the earth, who will surely do what is right. Amen. Let us stand and confess our faith, responding to God's word through the Apostles' Creed, which is printed in your bulletin. Please rise. People of God, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. A couple things to note as we come to prayer. We do want to extend our Christian sympathy to uh, Rosemary Scheidler on the loss of Ray this week. And I encourage you to continue to pray for Rosemary and for um, their, Ray and Rosemary's children and the, the whole um, Scheidler family. We also want to remember um, Matt Harwood's brother-in-law, David LaPau, who has some serious health concerns that uh, Matt notified me about this morning. So I want to keep him in prayer And finally, I do note uh, with gladness that Olive June Sanford, Dan and Emily's uh, baby girl, was born Friday. So mother and baby are doing well, so we're thankful for that. With that, let us pray. O Lord, you are indeed our refuge, and we call upon you to awake, to decree justice, to rule over the nations from on high, and to secure your people, O God in your righteousness. We pray for our own land that as the one who searches the hearts and the minds, you would judge our judges and our rulers justly. For you, O Lord, alone are the lawgiver, the judge, and the king. We pray for our troops that you would make them instruments of peace in the earth. That violence would end and that your just and peaceable kingdom would come. O Lord, we rejoice that you have given new life to the Sanfords. We give you thanks for little Olive and we ask your blessing on her. And we remember Michelle Osterman and Jennifer Quirk and their little ones. Be to them, O Lord, as you were to the psalmist, a shield who saves. 
We do pray as well for the mission of the Holy Catholic Church. The people, O Lord, who you have called out to pray for your kingdom to come. We lift up to you our sister Jody Collins and the Ministry of Community Health Evangelism. We ask your blessing, O Lord, on their teaching and their training and discipling and instructing. Prosper, O Lord, uh, the work they are doing with the schools in Zambia. Let your gospel, concrete and practical, in word and deed go forth. And finally, Lord, we remember your people, our brethren, our friends who, who lie in weakness and distress. We pray for your continuing comfort for Rosemary and her family. We thank you for Raymond's life and that he is now absent from the body and yet present with the Lord of all the nations. We remember Donna Conklin and Bert Pillsworth. And we lift up, O oh Lord, David LaPau, Matt's brother-in-law. We remember Hannah Rich and Mike Pulara and Roger Nystrom. We lift up David Smith and Nicole Conti, and Kaya Sachs and Amanda Waters and others, Lord, who we know. For there are many who are afflicted and in distress. We lift them before the light of your countenance and we pray for comfort. We pray that you would strengthen them through the power of your Holy Spirit. That they might know the hope to which you've called them in Christ. Hear our prayers, O Most High God. For we ask in the name of the falsely accused and now vindicated one, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.